You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Good morning, Redemption. I've been thinking a lot about worship lately, Um, what it is that we do when we're here together. Um, I think with all the topsy-turviness of the past couple of years, as we come in worship and out of worship, and we go home because we're sick, and we go home because, uh, you know, new variants, and just kind of the, the rise and fall of public life these days, one of the questions that I confront as a pastor is, what does it mean for us to worship together? Like, what are we actually doing on Sunday mornings? So I find myself thinking about worship because we worship. Um, But maybe more significantly, I find myself thinking a lot about worship these days um, just because of my own, like, my own neediness, my own, like, I don't know, tatters on my heart. Um, which I, I say up here, and maybe I'm sometimes too frank with you guys. Um, it's, it scares uh, y'all, or at least your friends sometimes. Um, sorry about that. Uh, but I guess my goal um, as a pastor, as a preacher, is not to just like vomit my own pain, my own struggles, my own whatever on you guys week after week, um, but to, in little ways, in faithful ways, say, I'm right here with you. And all I'm trying to do, um, it's been an emotional week for me. I don't don't know why it is, but there's something about, like, I can be guarded all week and happy all week and okay all week, and then I'm up here and I'm like, I've really got to talk about Jesus. And it's like, well, (laughs) here's here's just where I am. Um, But but it's it's in my own tatters, it's my own um, hurt and suffering and struggles and doubts. Um, My question as a human, yes, as a pastor, But even more fundamentally, as a human, my question is, what are we doing here? Like, why are we singing? Why are we praying? Why are we reading these scriptures? Um, and And I guess my simple answer is, because as we do, Jesus continues showing up. Even though everything's not fixed yet, everything's not perfect yet, everything's not hunky-dory, even though uh, for some reason my life as a pastor has been significantly harder than my life before I was a pastor, uh, despite um, what one might popularly expect. Um, I keep showing up week after week um, for the same reason that I expect many of you keep showing up week after week is there's something compelling and moving and brilliantly sublime about Jesus. And so what we're doing this morning is we're uh, going back to 
a series we've been in for a couple of years. Um, so if you're new here, welcome to Redemption, the happiest church on earth. Um, no, no, no. It, welcome to Redemption. Um, we are starting, uh, I think, episode number 60 of this uh, sermon series. And if you haven't listened to the first 59, then there's no way you're going to understand today. No, no, no. I'm, I'm teasing again. Uh, what we've done is for a couple of months we did Advent and then we started off the new year and what we're doing over the next few weeks is we're returning to the Gospel of Mark and we're going to finish the Gospel of Mark together, uh, Lord willing, on Easter. So for the next 12 or so weeks we're going to walk through Mark chapter 14, 15 and the little bits of chapter 16 that actually should be in your Bibles. That uh, We'll get there. Um, with all of that... Here's what I want to do is as I want to jump into the text uh, rather quickly here, <laughs> which is funny to say at this point. But but I want to jump into the text. But but as we do, um, all of all of my intro here this morning is really just a plea for you. As as we turn to the text, like um, say a little silent prayer, like lift your soul to the one who might actually be here to the one who might actually heal us and change us and be worthy of our affection and joy and delight and might actually have something for us together this morning. That's what we're doing every time we turn uh, to the scriptures. And man, do I love uh, this story of Mark. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 1. I'm reading from the Common English Bible this morning because uh, I actually really love its translation of these 11 verses. It was two days before Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. You don't need to know all the history there, but there's a giant Jewish holiday. It used to be two holidays. It kind of merged into one, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the, chiefs, the chief priests and legal experts, through cunning tricks, were searching for a way to arrest Jesus and kill him. So we're going to have two major themes this morning. We're going to have a theme of opportunity and a theme of money, and these are going to kind of coalesce onto a theme of worship. But we're framed here, and we're going to be framed at the end. It's a couple days before this major Jewish holiday, and the religious elite are trying to figure out how to kill Jesus. Verse 2. But they agreed that it shouldn't happen during the festival, otherwise there would be an uproar among the people. So the religious ones, the ones who we kind of presume to be earnest and like uh, acting in good faith, one, they're not acting in good faith because they're wanting to kill God's rec- representative who shows up among them. But two, like they're, they're not even gutsy enough and earnest enough and mature enough to like do it in public, to do it with like due process. I know due process is not a thing back then, but like they're, they're not going to do it in open. They're, they're going to do it in secret, which is like doubly shady. You're going to kill God and then you're going to like hide it. Well, I know you don't think it's God, but like if you're really that convinced and you're really that firm that this is a good thing, then like do it in the open and... Yet, here they are, looking for opportunity. Verse 3. Now, Jesus was at Bethany visiting the house of Simon, who had a skin disease. 
Now, we don't know anything else about this Simon. Simon's a really popular name. There's a bunch of Simons in the New Testament. We don't know which one this is, if it's any of them. But there's a certain Simon. He apparently is a homeowner, which gives him a certain level of status. Um, And he is in Bethany, and he had a skin disease. The technical word for this is leprosy. Although there's a weird thing about leprosy is it is a word in the Old Testament and New Testament. And yet what we call leprosy nowadays um, doesn't exactly line up with what they call leprosy in the old days, which is why I actually like this translation of he just had a skin disease. Now, what you need to know about this skin disease is this skin disease um, would have made him unclean in a ritual significant way where he is uh, unwelcome among God's people. So, So this is part of it. Holy people do not hang out with lepers, partially because they're unclean. The second part of it is holy people do not hang out with lepers because those lepers are being cursed and judged by God. Now, this this seems a little like harsh and a little old school, and yet I'm convinced that the vast majority of us who grow up in and around the the American church these days internalize messages exactly like this. And then God can only hang out with you once you're holy enough, or at least once you have the right intentions, or at least once you're really trying. Or, Or another way that this comes out is, well, if you're suffering, then like, are you really 100% sure that there's no like hidden sin in your life? Like if, 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 right? And we have all these ways um, to judge people just like they did, and all the religious people who we framed this story by saying the really religious people wanted to kill God when he showed up on earth, and they wanted to do it in secret. They weren't even proud of it. And Jesus is hanging out with the kinds of people, once again, that none of the religious establishment thought were worthy of God, thought had good intentions, thought were clean enough to be in the presence of God, and they thought this uh, because the Bible told them so. A whole other thing there about how do we appropriately understand what God's will and word mean. Now, during dinner, a woman came in with a vase made of alabaster, expensive um, vase, containing very expensive perfume of pure nard. Now, there's four words here. I'm not going to like go in and do a huge word study, but expensive, perfume, pure, and nard. So Mark could have said one word here. Instead, he's piled four together because really what he wants you to get is he wants you to understand this is very extremely valuable stuff. It is aromatic Um, John uh, tells us about this same uh, scene in John chapter 12. We get this exact same happening, and it says that as she broke open this jar, it filled the whole house with the aroma. It it is um, pungent stuff, like pungent in a good way. Maybe that's not pungent, but like it's it's, it's strong-smelling stuff. It's it's oily. It's thick. um, It's oil-based, not uh, alcohol-based like our modern perfumes, and yet it it is perfume, not just ointment. And so what she's going to do is she comes in with this very expensive vase, and it has very expensive stuff in it. And she broke open the vase and poured the perfume on Jesus's head. Now, this is the whole image for this morning. We're going to continue reading a few more verses, but, but what she's doing here is an act of worship. 
She realizes that the lover of her soul is in the room, and she says, my only right and appropriate response, what I, what I long to do, what I yearn to do, what I need to do in this moment is worship him by pouring this very expensive perfume on his head as a demonstration of how much he means to me, how much I love him. Now, it says she broke it open, so what she's doing is she could have just taken the, the stopper out of the top and poured it just dripped a little bit and it would have filled the room with its smell. But she goes over the top and pours the whole thing. She pours the whole thing and then breaks the vase. She says, there's no going back. I'm not holding anything back. I'm giving everything to Jesus in this moment because he is worthy of my absolute everything. There's, there's like real worship going on here in a potent sense. Now, um, Mark doesn't give us all this context, but I find it helpful um, that John does give us this context. In John chapter 12, when John is telling the same story, he tells us that the woman who does this is Mary, who is the sister of Martha and the sister of, of Lazarus. Now, Lazarus was a friend of Jesus's. Lazarus died. Jesus resurrected Lazarus. But not only was Lazarus Jesus' friend, Mary and Martha, the sisters, were people, humans, like actual living beings that Jesus loved. John explicitly tells us this. Jesus loved Mary, Jesus loved Martha, and Jesus loved Lazarus. There's a famous scene when Lazarus dies, Jesus weeps, even though Jesus knows he's about to resurrect Lazarus. Like there is, there's intimacy and there is profound, deep affection that Jesus has for Mary. Now, this, this scene has come about after Lazarus has died. So Jesus knows Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He loves them. He loves spending time with them. He knows them. And then their brother dies, and they're like, Jesus, why did you let our lives fall apart like this? Um, Jesus actually comes to them, and he calls Mary. And Martha goes to her at a certain point, and she, and she says, hey, Jesus is outside. He's waiting for you. He's calling you. Come to him. And there's like this very sweet moment where Jesus like pursues her, and she like wails and complains and says, hey, you've allowed my brother to die and I don't understand it. And he says, by the way, I am the resurrection and I'm going to heal him. And then, she, and then he does actually heal her brother, right? So we've, we've got a number of different levels on which Mary deeply loves Jesus. She loved Jesus before, like there was a, a bigger, more personal reason to love Jesus. Like they hung out, they knew each other. She already loved Jesus. And then her brother died and Jesus came to comfort her in that moment. She loved Jesus. He showed up when she was distraught and in desperate need of him. He comforted her with words and with his presence and with being able to take her harshness and her disappointment and all of her stuff. He loved her and she loved him back. And then beyond that, he did the miraculous, messianic, over-the-top, all-powerful parlor trick of healing and resurrecting Lazarus. Of course, it's more than a parlor trick, but you, you understand what I'm saying. Like, he does this miraculous thing of giving her back this brother whom she deeply loves. Mary loved Jesus, and then he showed up at her time of need. And Mary loved Jesus even more, and then he miraculously healed her brother. And Mary loved Jesus even more, and then she shows up at this house in the presence of Jesus when he's reclining at table, having a fancy dinner with his friends, 
and she loved Jesus. She loved Jesus so much that she said, I need to show Jesus physically how much I love him. I I need to do it in a pure way, in an earnest way, in a chaste way, but in an over-the-top way, and here's what I have. And she found her alabaster jar, and instead of just saying, hey, Jesus, here's a little bit, or here's a lot, let me give you like an extra long pour. No, she shatters the thing and dumps it all on top of him. She says, I love you more than anyone has ever loved anything. I worship you with my wealth, with my being in like shameless, absolute openness. I am here for you, Jesus. She worships because the lover of her soul is present. Jesus had loved Mary. He came and he directly invited her to himself. I'm here. Come to me. He wept when she wept. He resurrected her brother, and he promised that he would resurrect her and give her life too. Like Jesus really profoundly loved Mary, and Mary loved him back for it. By the way, everything that I just stipulated about Jesus' love for Mary, the, the biblical authors intend for us to insert ourselves into this story in every single one of these these sentences. Jesus loved Mary. Jesus loves you. Jesus came when Mary was downtrodden and he directly invited her to himself. I'm here, come to me. Jesus has come to you even if you're downtrodden and he is directly inviting you to himself. I'm here, come to me. At her lowest when she was weeping, she didn't weep alone but Jesus wept with her. And in the same way, at your very lowest, at your very most painful, Jesus weeps when you weep. And then Jesus resurrected her beloved brother and promised to give her life too. And Jesus will resurrect all of your beloved siblings and friends and will give you life just the same. You see, I I love this image of Mary worshiping Jesus here because so much of my life I spend looking to like fill myself. I'm just, I'm, I'm a person of like profound appetites. I don't want to eat, 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 and then I want to feast. Like I want to either have like dry, boring chicken, I don't care, just like get it quick and cheap and get it over with, and then I want like the richest, fattest, most indulgent foods. And so much of my life is spent around finding some sort of indulgence to soothe my soul at times of suffering, at times of loneliness, at times of stress, at times of whatever. I'm like, I just, I need to ingest, I need to guzzle, I need to take in. And I love this story because what she does is she gives out. She gushes forth this worship, this alabaster, this Jesus. You are worth everything. And I wonder if there's something in this story for me this morning, and maybe for some of you, which is obviously why I'm sharing it, that that not only do we need to take in, but we need to give out. We need to actually come to a place of worshiping Jesus. Because I'm wondering if this action isn't just because she was already changed, 
It's not that she was a changed, glorified, perfect human and therefore responded to Jesus perfectly, but somehow in her response, I think we are going to see one more time her leveling up in intimacy with Jesus. We're going to see um, her come to some hard times here in just a second, and then Jesus defend her again, and Jesus one-up her in declaring his love for her, just like she has done here. And I wonder if in the same way that what she starts out doing here is poor herself out. I wonder if I would pour myself out in some act of worship even more here and now and this week. I wonder if Jesus might not one-up me as well. Here's what I mean, verse 4. Some grew angry. Some. Who, who, Who are the some? Mark never tells us All we know is that Jesus is in a town he's familiar with. He's been hanging out with his disciples. He's about to hang out with his disciples. The only people ever in view are people who are his disciples, who follow him, who love him, whom he loves. Like, these are his disciples in view. The the some are not the Pharisees. They're not the Sadducees. They're not the religious opponents. They're not the religious elite. They're not the hypocrites. The some are the followers of Jesus. Now, in Mark, one of the themes over and over and over is that the people around Jesus still don't get Jesus. Like, they sort of get it, but they don't get it. They sort of get it, and then they don't. They claim to get it, and then they're like completely backwards of Jesus. They, they, they profess their love and their admiration and their worship and all this stuff for Jesus, and then they end up acting like the people who want to kill Jesus, who are looking for opportunity to kill him and want to do it in secret. So some of Jesus' friends grew angry. And they said to each other, why waste the perfume? This perfume could have been sold for almost a year's pay and the money could have been given to the poor. And they scolded her. So we're thinking, I, I, I guess it's um, a function of like income inequality, um, that then there becomes hyperinflation and when the, like, rich, when the really rich people have such power and such sway, then they can jack up the prices on the really rare things. Anyway, like apparently this bottle of perfume is worth like tens of thousands of dollars. Like it's, it's worth a year's pay, even if it's like a low year's pay, like it's worth tens of thousands of dollars. And so what they're doing is they're looking around and they're saying, yeah, like, your worship is cool, but, like, all that did, Mary, was it made you feel good in the moment. Like, you got some goosebumps and there was a smoke machine and, like, who cares, Mary? Like, wouldn't it have been better if you had actually spent that money on doing some good that you claim to care about? And, like, they criticize her. And so it's, it's, it's really interesting that, that as we frame this story with Mark, we, we frame it with um, the Pharisees who are lovers of money, who at the end of the story are going to offer to give money to one of Jesus' followers in order to kill Jesus. So they're looking for an opportunity. It comes down to money. And then even the people who are close to Jesus, like what they're really like uh, up in a tizzy about is, is money. And they're really critical. I think probably they're being unfair, but like at the very least, they're very harsh. They're, they're very direct, and they scolded her. It's like you have this moment. She comes to the presence of Jesus. She's like, I've got this thing. It's worth tens of thousands of dollars. Jesus is here. Boy, do I love him. I got to worship him. What am I going to do? 
Am I going to give him a little? No. Am I going to give him a lot? No. I'm going to give him the whole dang thing, and I'm going to smash it in an act of worship for him. And she, like, goes over the top in front of everyone, and John tells us apparently she's, like, rubbing his feet with her hair, and there's just this over-the-top act of worship, and the people around her say, well, like, but, but you're a hypocrite. Couldn't you care for the poor? Like, Jesus cares for the poor and the oppressed. Like, what about you, Mary? And they just like tisk tisk her here in this moment. And, and like they shame her. And I wonder if in this moment of like of, of intimacy, of uh, ecstatic worship, of over the top, like a self-abandon of the presence of Jesus, when they like scold her, like this is huge. This is the kind of, kind of moment that she might never worship again. This is the kind of moment that if you were caught in this and called out in this and criticized in this, like I think you might never think that worship alone was ever very valuable to Jesus again. And oh yeah, you guys are right. I should have like, oh man, I've, I just like I ruined it. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Actually, literally what he, what he says here is forgive her. It also means leave her alone, but like in a different context, if he said these exact same Greek words, it is forgive her. And the reason, the reason that, I, that I almost wish that they had translated it as forgive her is not because she has anything to be forgiven with uh, from. Eh, prepositions, fun. It's not because she's done anything wrong. Jesus isn't saying forgive her because she sinned and yet I forgive her, therefore you should forgive her. No, 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 that, that's not his point. But, but there is something like, powerful here that if, that if even they had had just a merciful, gracious disposition to her, like the people around her that are, that are judging her, that are hating her, they're making themselves opponents of Jesus, right? To give away a little of the story, but you kind of knew where this was going. They're making themselves opponents of Jesus. And they could have avoided that if they would have just given her the benefit of the doubt. Instead of assuming that they knew everything about her and her inner world and what she cared about and what Jesus wanted, if they could just like forgive her in the first place, like this whole thing that's going to go bad for them would have been avoided. It would have softened just a little bit, right? It would have been best if they had properly understood what Jesus understands, but it would have been okay if they just weren't judgmental jerks. Leave her alone. Why do you make trouble for her? She's done a good thing for me. Now, we, we could go on here, and there's part of this that's like, yay, Jesus, he defended her. And, and like, that's good, but that's not the height of good that we should see in this story. All right, so, so what I wanted to do at the beginning was, like, um, try to give you a sense of, like, how radically and effusively and with abandon Mary loved Jesus in this moment. She declared, I wholeheartedly love you with my everything. There is no room for hypocrisy. I'm not doing this just for show. This is my everything. You are worth my everything. I absolutely devote myself to you, Jesus. 
And then everybody else kind of like indignantly scolds her. And Jesus says, you know what? I love you that much too. Because what he tells her in this moment is, it was absolutely worth it to me for you to waste all that money telling me how much you love me. It's, it's worth it. I respond in kind. He loves her that much too. Or he would have said, yeah, like Mary, you kind of overdid it. I know you love me, but like, uh, can we just be friends? Can I just like put some healthy balance boundaries here and keep you like he, he might have responded in so many ways and yet he says yes Mary yes Mary this is beautiful it is good she worships with her everything and Jesus responds and says I know you love me with abandon I love you with abandon too and he's, he's gonna up it and say it again in a minute in a slightly different way. But you have this like whiplash for Mary. All right, just think about her in the story, like being her, this, this man whom you love, who's this miracle worker who's told you that he's the Messiah, who you know is the resurrection, is back in your presence. He's been telling you that he's going to die. You're, you're pretty sure it's finally going to come and you have one more time to be in his presence. You're going to give him your everything and you like break this and worship him and then you're scolded for not being loving enough to the poor and you're like, ah, oh, crap, maybe I did wrong. And then all of a sudden Jesus is like, no, you did absolutely right. I love you that much too. And you're just like back on cloud nine and you're like, this is, this is beautiful and this is Fantastic. Because her extravagant love isn't one direction, it's extravagant love both directions. And then if we think like just a little bit metaphorically, what she does is she takes this like pure, perfect, expensive, uh, irreplaceable, like priceless, super high value thing and shatters it on, her, on Jesus' behalf. Just as pure offering, just as pure self-giving, just as pure love and affection and joy. And then exactly what Jesus is about to do is take something that is irreplaceable, that is completely precious and perfect and beautiful, and he's going to shatter the body of God on behalf of this woman and on behalf of you. She shatters this. You're worthy of all of this. And he says, I know you thought that alabaster jar was priceless. Let me break something for you that is incomparably more priceless. Because as much as you love me, I love you even infinitely more. And then he continues, verse 7. He continues going out his guys and says, you always have the poor with you. Whenever you want, you can do something good for them. Which, by the way, like, have you? I, I'd, like, I'd love to know, just like the rest of this conversation, when she's like, I am offering Jesus my everything, and they're like, well, wouldn't it have been better if they gave it to the poor? Like, I'd love to know in that circle, in that moment, how many of them had actually done that, had actually taken something like that and just straight up given it to the poor. 
You see, there, we, we talked last week, actually, um, not to go back on a week because maybe you didn't listen, um, but one of the things we talk about um, a lot here, and I think we need to understand to understand the world of Jesus, is that sin is not just actions. Sin is something, um, something more real, something more inherent, something more like concrete than just actions. When it comes to us as individuals, um, we, we talk about not just actions, but nature and love and dispositions and like the whole of our being. So, so when we talk about what Jesus needs to fix for us, it's not just that he needs to forgive us for bad actions, more than just sins being actions. Sin is this whole state of being that needs to be healed. Yes, forgiven, but also healed and transformed and taken somewhere different than it is, right? So there's, there's these kind of two individual levels of actions and nature. And then the New Testament adds on a third level that we ignore even more, which is this reign of sin, this domain of sin, this like space of sin, where this power of sin rules with dread and with terror and with an iron fist, whether we want it, whether we like it, whether we acknowledge it. But, but all of us find ourselves under the influence of the powers, the rulers, the princes, the principalities, the thrones, the dominions, the spiritual forces of evil. They're now at work in the sons of disobedience, as uh, St. Paul says in Ephesians 2. But, but what do these look like? These feel so abstract that sometimes we're like, ah, I, like, I don't want to be, Jesus, free me. Jesus, liberate me, which is language from Paul in, say, Galatians, which he talks about actually being the gospel. The gospel is Jesus forgives you for your actions. He forgives you for your sins. The gospel is Jesus changes your nature. Yes, he heals your sin. And, and the gospel is that Jesus frees you from the domain of sin. He liberates you this is forgiving of sin, this is the gospel. But one of the ways that this becomes most clear to me, honestly, is in the domain of money. Money is one of these powers, it's one of the principalities, that we have two completely different groups here. We have like the hypocrites, the religious elite, who like to talk a big game about God, and then God shows up in their face, and they kill him. Part of the reason that they do that is they love money. They love the power of money. They love the control of money. They love being able to get people to do exactly what they want by using their money. They're all about money. But, but the people closest to Jesus who are trying to give their lives to Jesus, who are trying to care about the poor, who are trying to care about the poor. It's um, a snooty way to say that word. Me and Montgomery Burns. Um, Okay, now I'm so distracted. But we've got these opponents of Jesus who very clearly buy into the ideal of money, and these people who are close to Jesus who are trying to repent of their love of money. And yet here, in this moment, they are just as subject to the insidious domain and dominion of money, of Lord Mammon, as Jesus would call him, as any of the people around them. Right? They, they have no idea that this is the case, but what they are doing is they are trying to separate Jesus from one of his most beloved followers on the basis of money. Like They claim to be earnest and good and like high-minded and loving, and yet what they're doing is they're trying to destroy the connection of the divine to one of his people on the basis of money. This is the domain of sin that is sneaky and terrifying, if I'm completely honest. 
Because money has obviously gotten to the Pharisees, but apparently it got to the hypocritical disciples too. So Jesus goes at them and says, hey, you always have the poor with them. Like, if you want to give them good things, like, do it. But by the way, have you ever done that? Eventually they do. But you won't always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body ahead of time for burial. Okay, one more last nerdy um, translation thing. I'm at the very beginning of verse 8 where it says she has done what she could. Like very literally what this says is what she had, she did. What she had, she did. The translation here is good. It's, it's, the, it's the right sense. But there's something about the literal, like what she had, she did, that is so freeing for me. Is I'm like, I want to worship Jesus with absolute abandon. And I get into like these hypotheticals. And, and we get into the domain of money. And I'm like, I want to, I want, like, I want to really serve him. But wait, do I give all, all my money away to the poor? Or what do I do? And like, if mammon's there and mammon's here, what, what do I do? And I just kind of end up in this endless swirl of how do I worship you with my everything, Jesus? I don't know how to do it. And I love that the very next, next verse is what she had, she did. And I wonder if all Jesus requires of you in this moment and me in this moment is what you have, do. Whatever he's given you to do, whatever he's put in front of you to do, whatever situation you find yourself in, do. Let that be the extent of your ultimate abandon to Jesus here and now. Not the hypothetical of what you could give or you might give or you could do or you might do if you position yourself one day down the road to eventually try to do, but what you have in this moment, do. Because she, in taking this tiny step of obedience, what she had, she did, she becomes the anointer of the anointed of God. Right? You understand that the, the Greek word for Christ, uh, the Greek word Christ, is the Hebrew word Messiah. Both of these are just the anointed one. Right? Christ is anointed one. Messiah is anointed one. What she does here is she becomes the anointer of the anointed one precisely by what she had, she did. She gave her everything in reckless abandon. She shattered this this pure, precious, very expensive nard. Yes, I'm not downplaying what she did. But she, what she had, she did, and in so doing, she became the, the Messiah maker. It's like blasphemous as that sounds, and yet this is exactly what Jesus expects she's doing. She has anointed my body, yes, for burial, but I tell you the truth, verse 9, wherever in the whole world, that the good news of the Messiah of God is proclaimed, is announced, what she's done will also be told in memory of her. Like her reckless abandon is worshipful and it's soul-filling and it's beautiful. And I say, I want my life to be characterized by that kind of worship. What do I do? What she had, she did. But God, could I ever do something so important, so magnificent, so meaningful, so whatever what she had, she did. And then in her very simple yet real obedience, he then tells everybody, hey, I know y'all are criticizing her because she didn't give enough to the poor, but guess what? 2,000 years from now in Houston, Texas. I know you've never heard of Texas. You've never heard of the new world. 
But 2,000 years from now, in Houston, Texas, they are still going to be talking about this act of devotion and this act of worship because she messiahed the Messiah. She anointed the anointed one. She understood something that no one else around understood. Now, one, one, one more piece. Let's, let's do one more aside because these are fun. All right, maybe, I, maybe I'm the only one that thinks so. Um, the anointing that happens in the Old Testament, God sends a prophet to a soon-to-be king, and he tells the prophet, hey, speak these words over my king. Pour the oil on their head and tell them they are now the king appointed by Yahweh over the people of Yahweh. This, this anointing is a very significant act. Now, as they're expecting a ruler from God, a Messiah from God, a king from God, she comes and Jesus says, she is the one who has anointed me. So there's something very significant in that. And yet what she's done in anointing him is she has prepared his body for burial because the rule of Jesus begins in death, because the power of Jesus begins in weakness, because the bright, brilliant, shining light of Jesus begins in dark, because Jesus is the upside down king that says, my anointing as king is the exact same as my anointing for burial. There's something so beautiful and so powerful that she is seeing and doing in this moment, and I have no idea if she got it or not, but Jesus understood it, and he says, do y'all understand that she is truly and powerfully telling you who the Messiah is in this moment? Yes, that Messiah is worth your everything, but that Messiah is worth your everything precisely because that Messiah is the one who will die for you and not kill you. Verse 10, Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to give Jesus up to them. John gives us the detail that one of the people specifically griping in the presence of Jesus about, hey, couldn't we have done more with that money was exactly Judas. So he gets up, he leaves, he goes to Jesus' opponents who are looking for a reason to kill him and Jesus goes, or Judas goes to these chief priests to give Jesus up to them. And when they heard it, they were delighted. What a gross phrase. And they promised to give him money. So he started looking for an opportunity to turn him in. So they're looking for opportunity to use their money against God she shows up and takes the opportunity to use her money in an act of obedient, beautiful worship in the presence of God. They want to kill him. She's trying to prepare his body for burial, and everyone else is standing against them. We'll come back and we'll carry on in verse 12 next week. Let's pray. God, I want more of this kind of holy worship. Um, God, my soul longs for it. God, I need to be in your presence. I need to be called into your presence. I need to be reaffirmed that my love for you is not one way. 
that everything that I'd ever give you pales in comparison with everything that you've joyously and affectionately and unyieldingly given to me. God, praise you for your goodness. Praise you for such inspiring and beautiful stories like this. Let us be worshipers as we abandon our all and give you our everything precisely because you are the God who has abandoned his all and given us even everything. Praise you. Be here. Hear our songs. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor, or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.